In the eighth chapter of Daniel, we hear Daniel's vision for the end times. He writes, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kingdoms of Medea and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace that one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. And he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, not by human power. Please pray with me. Dear God, I ask that you give me the right words today. And if what I say is not from you, I ask that everyone here will forget it all. But if it is from you, I ask that you imprint it, the spirit of this message, into all of our hearts. Amen. So we're looking at Daniel 8 today. And this vision brings us to a scene where the good are being trampled upon by the evil. The holy people are being destroyed. And as Christians, when we read through the Bible or even look at some of the things in the world around us, we can't help but wonder, shouldn't things be different? We often long for a God who kicks down doors and acts. But when those doors remain standing, we can find ourselves feeling like Job, saying to God, let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Why, we ask, are things so bad if you're so good? Maybe you felt this way in the past. Maybe you do right now. In the book of John, Jesus tells us that in this world we will experience suffering. We can't avoid it. We will be brought face to face with it and we'll stare into its eyes and we'll be confronted with not only the problem that suffering exists, but that sometimes evil seems to take down good. The good guys seem to lose. The shadows seem to overtake the light. And we're left there to find our way in the darkness. So as Christians living in this, we must ask the question, what does suffering tell us about God? And critics of religion have a few answers to what suffering tells us about God. They'd say that if there even is a God at all, the widespread suffering of this world tells us that this God is one of three things. He's either too weak to stop the evil, he's evil himself for letting it happen, or so distant, so impersonal, and just plainly disinterested. According to gentlemen like Richard Dawkins, these are the options. And in 2009, I found myself purchasing and reading The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Essentially, this book argues 
that there's almost certainly no supernatural creator and that religious faith itself is a delusion. And when I bought this book, this very copy, I was a second-year college student who had had strong faith in high school but had lost it all upon going to college and was now towing the line between agnostic and atheist. And I turned to this book for answers. And not only was I struggling with the problem of evil in the world, but more than that, just the cold, impersonal loneliness of it. If this life was the true end, what was the purpose of living? There didn't seem to be one. It seemed that human life as a whole was an error, a wrong turn, an evolutionary mistake that would correct itself eventually and write humans out from the script. Felt like our whole existence was a bad joke, one bad joke. Think about it. We as humans desire transcendence, and we received a short life with a hard end. Deep down, we long for ultimate meaning, do, doing things that matter. And at the end of the day, What's it all for? Nothing truly lasts. In our hearts, we long for relationship and intimacy and unity. And we die and fade into the darkness alone. It was a bad joke. I didn't like it, but I felt like I had found what was true. But then the longer I lived in this mindset, the more it clashed with what I experienced, how I felt. Let me give you an example. Later in 2009, that same year, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And it, it didn't feel like the way things were supposed to be. Sickness, cancer, was natural. So by my understanding of the world, sure, it should have been sad, but it shouldn't have felt unnatural. It shouldn't have felt plain wrong. But that's how it felt. It didn't seem right. Again, my worldview as an atheist told me that ultimately this life meant nothing. But inside of me, I was pulled to this idea that maybe it did. Science told me death into nothingness is natural, but it couldn't seem more unnatural to think about saying goodbye. It couldn't feel more wrong. And in the following years, I became a Christian again. And it's because I ran into another perspective about what this all means beyond what Mr. Dawkins has to offer me. And this perspective says that these sufferings we experience, they are the aching dawn, the prologue, the tragic but redemptive introduction of the most magnificent story ever told. And the script of this story is etched into the fabric of our hearts. The heartbeat of the story pulses through our veins. But part of that story is sorrow. We feel an ache. But this ache points to something. You see, our bodies have this tendency to alert us for what we need, for what we desire. For instance, when the body is hungry, it's pointing us towards food, towards eating. When the body is thirsty, it's pointing, pointing us towards water, towards drinking. When we're tired, sleep. You get the idea. So when we experience heartbreak and we ache over our suffering, what is it that our bodies are pointing us towards. And I believe they're pointing us home. It's a longing and a draw towards home. 
just like sea turtles, homing pigeons, and countless other animals that cross thousands of miles of sky, land, or ocean to return to the very nest, the very beach, the very tree on which for them it all began. Deep within us, there is an awareness of our home, of a place how and where we as humans once were and how we could once again be. A place where things ought to be right. A place where there is no suffering. And while Democrats and Republicans and Independents and Christians and atheists and every other group you could think of disagree about a lot of things, we can all agree that at the core, some things are just not right. It's not right that people get randomly gunned down in a movie theater. A new mother in her early 30s shouldn't be diagnosed with ALS. Children shouldn't get cancer and wither away in a hospital. Parents shouldn't see their child's clothes hanging in a closet, their shoes neatly by the door, and weep that they're gone forever. We may disagree what or who or if anything is responsible for it, but we can all agree that somehow, again, at the very core, these things simply are not right. We are not made to suffer with no purpose. We are not meant to die and disappear forever. And as Christians, we have a hope of life beyond death. Yet still nothing will reconcile us to how unnatural it is. We know that we are not made for death. We know that it crept into our lives as an intruder. Our souls whisper to us, this is not how it's supposed to be. So what do we say back to this voice? I'll have to tell a story. It's a true story from an article by the Charlotte Observer, later picked up by the Washington Post. And it takes place in the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. You see, in Charlotte, they had a lot of former soldiers coming home from serving overseas. And a lot of these soldiers were coming back with bad cases of PTSD. And they were getting in trouble with the law. They were getting arrested. And because of this, the city created what's called a Veterans Treatment Court, which deals with law cases involving veterans who have returned from service and have gotten into trouble back home. And the hope with this court is that it would help the veterans, it would help them rather than simply punishing them. So again, they create this Veterans Treatment Court. And here's where our story picks up. In North Carolina, there's this soldier, Sergeant Joseph Cerna, who has just been summoned to the Veterans Treatment Court for the 25th time since his return from serving overseas. Sergeant Cerna, a little bit about him, he was in the Green Berets and served in Afghanistan. He was nearly killed three times, once by a suicide bomber and once by a roadside bomb. In 2008, he was riding in an armored truck with three other soldiers, and the truck toppled into a canal and began to fill with water. And another soldier in the truck reached over and unfastened Sergeant Cerna's seatbelt, saving his life. This same friend did not make it out of the truck and died. Sergeant Cerna was actually the only one in the truck to survive. He was the only one. And since coming home, as I said, he's been brought before the court 25 times, this most recent time for failing a drug test. He's been fighting to stay sober, but he's struggled. And this 25th time, he comes before the judge. Because he's been in 25 times, the judge really doesn't have much of a choice but to issue a sentence. He has to sentence him. And he sentences him to one night in jail. 
And so the bailiff takes Sergeant Cerno away and takes him to the county jail, puts him in the cell, locks the door. Not too long after, the veteran, Sergeant Cerno, was sitting on the cot, and he looks up, and he sees the judge from his case outside of the cell. And the judge asks the sheriff to open the door to the cell, and the judge comes in and, and sits down next to the soldier on the cot. And he tell, the judge tells the bailiff, close the door and lock it. The soldier asks the judge, why are you here? What are you doing? And the judge looks at him and says, I'm going to spend the night with you. I had to sentence you to one night in jail, and I'm going to join you in that sentence. And when the newspaper was writing this article, they, they interviewed and asked the judge, why did you do this? What motivated you? And the, the judge said that there were two reasons. First, the judge said, you see, I'm a veteran. The judge was a veteran himself. He'd served in the military. He'd been there. He knew what it was like to have bombs explode under your car and, and what it was like to see your good friends killed right in front of your eyes. The judge understood how hard it is to come back from that and to try and live a normal life, to try and drive a car without the fear of a roadside bomb, to live with the guilt knowing that you lived and they died. And the judge said, second, he was also afraid of putting the soldier in the small cell because he thought it might trigger his PTSD. So the judge said, I decided to go join him. The article said that they stayed up talking all night, almost like father and son. And this is a great story. But beyond even just being a great story, there's something about it for me that just feels right. Feels like how things should be. And the story is the story of Christianity, that God himself saw our suffering, a lot of which we brought upon ourselves, but a lot of it we had nothing to do with. And he said, I'm, I'm not going to helicopter you out of it. I'm not going to toss your sentence out, but I am going to come down into it with you. I'll come into the suffering you deserve in the suffering that somehow just happened to you. I'm going to walk beside you. I will not just be beside you, I will be suffering with you. And when a loved one dies, Jesus says, I too was gripped by sorrow as I wept at the grave of Lazarus. And when you get a terminal diagnosis and fear that your end may soon be coming, Jesus says, I too feared the end as I wept in Gethsemane. And when you feel that God is nowhere to be seen when you cry out for rescue, Jesus would say, I have been there too when I was on the cross and I cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am with you to the end of the age. That is the promise. And Christianity affirms that suffering is horrible. We should never say that suffering and death don't matter. But we do believe that God can use suffering. He can turn what is horrible into something good. God so loved the world that he sent his son. He sent himself into a life of suffering alongside the sufferers and the dying. Emmanuel, God with us, that is Christianity. That's all it is. So I'll conclude by saying that this life we see here is not the end. Darkness is real, but it does not last forever. Daniel 8 speaks of the powers of the world ruling, the Antichrist rising, and then verse 25 says evil will be defeated by God. God has the last word. And we as Christians believe that evil was defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then you might say, well, sure seems like evil is alive and well in this world. 
And sometimes it does seem that way. But, and this is my own opinion, I believe we're now living in somewhat of the in-between. Jesus rose from the grave three days after dying on the cross. I believe we're living in those three days. Evil has been defeated, but it is not yet gone. But I believe God has already begun the work of redemption in our lives. God began writing this sermon at a bookstore back in 2009, and of all books, he used this one. And it might be hard to see, but he will use the suffering in your life for a greater purpose. He will. But it can be hard to see sometimes. Really hard. And when I think about this, I can't help but think about Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And if you remember in Acts 7, Stephen was preaching to a crowd, and they decided they didn't like what he was preaching. So they decided to stone him. And if we could bring Stephen up front with us today, I think he would tell us that sometimes in life, bad things will happen to you, and you won't really know why. You'll go into the fiery furnace, you'll go into the trial, the sickness, the lawsuit, the ordeal, and sometimes God doesn't perform a miracle, and he won't protect you from the flames. Stephen would tell us that God might step back, and that death will step in, and you'll ask God why he has forsaken you. But then Stephen would remind us that while he was preaching, there was a young man in the crowd named Saul. And this young man watched Stephen get killed, but he heard his sermon. Two chapters later, this man was renamed Paul. And I think it's fair to believe that part of the reason Paul's heart was open to conversion was the words of the dying man, Stephen, who up until his death preached about Jesus Christ. And just imagine how our world might be different, how our Bible might be different, if Stephen hadn't preached that day, if Stephen hadn't died that day, what at the time can appear to have no meaning whatsoever is ultimately part of a bigger story. But again, I know this, this bigger story can be hard to see. Or maybe you can't see it at all. Maybe things get worse. After Jesus died on the cross, after God died, the Bible says it became dark for three hours. And I think we, we feel that darkness after tragedies, after heartbreak. Sometimes it's, it's hard to find understanding in that darkness. I don't get how kids getting shot in a school can be part of a bigger story. Or how a drunk driver killing an entire family can be part of an ultimate plan. I can't understand it. But at some point, it all boils down to a decision of whether or not we think God is trustworthy. Is he one that we can trust? And if he is, we, we may not ever find out the answer to the whys in this lifetime, why these things happen. But we will get an answer to the how. How I can carry on in this life. And God tells us that the time will come when all will be made right. It was three days after Jesus died before life returned to him. And our third day is coming. And on that day, the earth will be remade. And the songs in our hearts will, will find their voice as we realize that we are finally home. Our world will be renewed and restored. Our bodies will be renewed and restored. All things will be made new. And when that day comes, I'm looking forward to a reunion. I'll be looking around for faces and smiles that I can recognize it will be a time of joy beyond words, a time of restored friendships, of overdue embraces, 
a love which says it never died, a homecoming of faces that vanished too long ago, yet tell us with smiling lips that they knew nothing of the grave. I'm going to laugh with my uncle. I'm finally going to meet Karina. And at last, together, as C.S. Lewis puts it, we will be beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The story which was written in our hearts will be read aloud to us, and it will be beautiful. This is our hope. Amen.